Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Mark Zweig, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's always good to be here with you. Oh, it's great to have you here. We we uh, we were we had you. I was just looking at the archives, and you were episode three seventy three the last time you were here. I was shocked to see that it was April of two thousand twenty one. You shared the entire story of the Zweig Group from the beginning of where you started, right, and shared your entire origin story, and then told the entire. So I group story. And so if anybody wants to listen to that, and you should listen to that, it's a fascinating story. It's episode 373. 
Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Mark is an entrepreneur and founder of two Inc. 500, 5,000 companies, both 5,000 and 500. Um, he is the founder of the Zui Group, a consulting, research, publishing, media, and training company serving our industry, the AEC industry. Since 2005, teaching entrepreneurship at the Sam Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. He is a real estate developer, a designer, a builder at Marks Weig Incorporated. It's a design build contracting company that was named to the Inc. 5000 in 2014. Author now of 13 books, including his latest, which we're going to talk about today, uh, Confessions of an Entrepreneur. You can find it everywhere that books are sold. Um, he is the writer of the Zweig Letter, writes regularly at the Zweig Letter, uh, weekly contributor at the Walton College Insights, monthly contributor to the North uh, Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, and he's prolific on Twitter. If you go and follow him on Twitter, you'll find a lot of interesting business information, a lot about his cars, which I follow him for his cars. Um, so you should follow him too. Uh, Mark, good to have you back. Hey, thanks so much, Mark. It's always fun talking with you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I, uh, we're not going to share your origin story. I, they should go back to episode 373 for that. I want to jump right into this book. This is this is different than your other books. Um, this is this is a storybook, is the way I look at it. Right? It's a, it's entitled "Confessions of an Entrepreneur: Simple Wisdom for Starting, Building, and Running a Business." Um, why did you write this one? Uh, that's a good question. Um... Well, I, I wanted to write it, something that wasn't for architects and engineers specifically, because that's all I've ever done. Yeah. And, you know, the last 17 years has been a great learning experience for me. Um, you know, I mean, I've got my own life to reflect on. And, and you know, I did have some other businesses in there, aside from Zweig Group and Mark Zweig Inc. I mean, you know, my First wife and I owned a reading clinic. I had a motorcycle shop when I was in college and grad school. Um, I have uh, was a founder, co-founder of a baby product business. And, um, but I've learned so much really, mostly in the last 17 years um, of, of teaching entrepreneurship and all the companies that my students worked with over the course of that um, that time in one of my classes, it's called small enterprise management. They have to work with a small company. Uh, well, I say small under 10 million revenue privately held and they've got to help them. It's a very open-ended project. They're typically seniors. So it's sort of a capstone project and they have to help the owners increase revenue, increase profitability, reduce their risk and increase the value of their business. I love that. And they can use any approach they want to study it. And, and um, you know, in the, in the end, they make recommendations. They tell us what the response of the, of the uh, business owner was to their recommendations. And uh, so, you know, it's been a great learning experience going through all that too. So that's such a great idea. So, so they, so they go through all these years of, of education. They learn all these, these, tools and tips and tactics and strategies and then they go off and get to execute and get to get to recommend and hopefully execute um and maybe help some business owners be more successful that's pretty cool yeah 
And some of them actually end up owning the business. Yeah. Which is really fascinating. Um, I've got one right now. And of course, then my students, a lot of them end up in business and some of them I stay in touch with, um, you know, over the years. Uh, and, and that's one of the greatest parts of my job is just seeing them be successful and, and, um, feeling like, you know, they, they, they got something out of our, out of the class and, and, uh, and, and so that's super, super gratifying. Just last, last year, one of my students did a report on a business that he'd worked at for three and a half years here locally. And it was very apparent from his work that the owner had lost interest in the business. Um, just a variety of things that he uncovered. And I said to him at the end, you know, we get went through the class, got to ask all their questions. And, and at the end of that, um, uh, I asked him, I said, now, let me ask you a question. He goes, what's that? I said, if I told you that you could get out of here next year, um, which is she's graduating um, in December, and you could work um, at that business and make $50,000 the first year, and maybe make 80000 the second year, and by the third year, make a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand. Would you do it? He said, yeah, I'd do that. I said, well, then you need to approach the owner about selling you that business (laughs) because you could easily do that with what he's got right there. And he did. And the guy said, well, as a matter of fact, I've got somebody else that I've already committed to sell it to. Um, But if that falls apart, I'll let you know. And a few weeks later, he said, hey, that deal fell apart. So I want to do it. And um, he's closing, I think, at the end of this month now. How did, how did really he, as, as a student, how did he fund a purchase like that? He is getting uh, about a $100,000 uh, bank loan and the owner is financing the rest of it to him, Got which it. I had a feeling he'd do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we worked together on, on just sort of a basic deal structure. And and um, the in fact, in the end, the owner was so desperate. He said, if you can't get the 100, I'll finance 100% of it to you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, he probably, he probably respected your student, understood the business and recognized that he could take it somewhere. And so he wanted him to have it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's just really exciting for me. And then, you know, like uh, last week I had lunch with a former student of mine who graduated a couple of years ago. He had started a business while he was here and within a year of graduating, he had maybe 11 or 12 employees and was rocking along and he needed a whole bunch of cash to put into it. And he decided not to do it, to just shut it down. And he took a job. I think he's making 120, something like that, working for a company in Providence, Rhode Island. Decided he wanted to live somewhere else like Providence and did that. And uh, anyway, he was back um, and took me out to lunch and he paid, which is super unusual. I'm usually (laughs) the guy that gets gets the check so, that must have been must have been a nice treat it was it really made it made it even nicer but now he just wanted to tell me how great it was that you know he had that that business and the what he learned from that was far better than any experience he could have gotten if he paid to go to grad school somewhere and and uh, just you know i really appreciated that um it was it was great so Anyway, back on the book, you know, 
I, I think just so many lessons um, between my own experiences and the experiences I observed in clients and the experiences I, I got, um, you know, vicariously through my students working with the companies that they worked with. And then this, the companies that my students have, have started or acquired. And then finally, my Vistage members, you know, that's yet another group of small business owners. Ex and, explain uh, Vistage so people understand what that is. Well, Vistage is a, basically, it's a CEO support group. It's another business, right? It's a, it's a yeah. new business of yours. It, 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 yes. Um, it, you know, we organize, um, they're all over the world, these groups. Vistage is a privately held company. It's owned by um, private equity um, firm. But um, you organize groups of business owners, and we have a variety of different types of business owners. Um, they're all privately held companies. Um, you know, we have groups for CEOs. We have a, another group here called the key group. It's, it's for their sort of designated number twos or people that are maybe owners, but they're not the CEO. And, um, and we sort of serve as an outside advisory board for each of our members. Um, and so they bring issues to the meetings. Um, we have a lot of training, vestige supply speakers from all over the, the nation um, for our meetings. And, uh, but then part of the meeting is, is always uh, dealing with issues that the business owners are facing yeah. issues or opportunities. It sounds it's like, an, uh, an entree architect mastermind for corporate executives. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> it, it, yeah. Not, except not for corporate executives, just for privately held business, Pri owners. private, privately held yeah. businesses, but larger bi businesses, right? Yeah, not, not architects and engineers specifically yeah. either. Yeah, but yeah, it's the same. It's the same idea. And then um, I also have to provide a certain amount of coaching, although I hate that term. Um, every month to each member individually. What do you prefer instead of coaching? Uh, to me, it's consulting. I don't care whether people say that's not what it is or 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 not, but I, I just don't. I just don't like coaching. I just have a negative feeling about it. I don't know why. Um, well, I well, do there's, there's a lot of coaches out there that shouldn't be coaching. So I can understand that. That's it. There's a zillion coaches out there. And I think a lot of it is, 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 uh, you know, I, I, if it were me, I'd be questioning the advice I got from some of those coaches, but yeah, yes, I've had many... some, I had some business coaches early on in my career that <laughs> clearly should not have been coaching. <laughs> they were, basically business failures and they became mm -hmm. coaches because they thought it would be an easy way to make money. And they started it's, advising yeah. me as a young, as a young entrepreneur. And I knew immediately that they had no idea what they were talking about. It was so frustrating. It was part of a program that I went through. It was like, Oh, you're wasting my time. Yes. That's exactly what my impression is. Yeah. Of many yeah. coaches, but and there's anyway, a lot of good coaches so, out there too, for sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there are, but, um, so all those experiences, I guess, you know, I wanted to sort of package that up in a neat way and share these lessons learned for people who are either already in business or those who want to start a business someday and maybe keep them from making some of the same mistakes that I made and other people made along the way and help make them more successful. I mean, yeah. that's 
so that's that's the reason why um i did this thing um you know the i guess the biggest problem mark is nobody reads books and and you know the attention span of so many people is so short today and you know i think the other thing that i'm gonna have to battle if i want to effectively market this book is just the general sort of attitude about business books um, isn't great from a lot of people you know they just think that that a lot of them are just they're either boring um, or they've got some sort of cliche ridden buzzword laden program that they want to put people on yeah and so people are skeptical of business books and i think rightfully so yeah, I, I think that that because good business books are rare, they become mm-hmm. more and more rare. Um, I think today people aren't reading as much as they were. And so as an author, I would imagine that you have to, like you said, you have you have a challenge, right? That yeah. that you have to convince an audience that uh, that your book is the book that they should read, right? Because if they're only going to read one book a month, maybe, uh, or or one book a year, right? <laughs> Why would your book be that book, right? And that's and that's the yeah. challenge, right? So if you're, in, and because the the authors are still writing books, right? There's still hundreds of books, thousands of books, hundreds of thousands of books being published. Yep. Um, and so so, why is your book the book they should read? Because it's super simple, and I tried to make it entertaining. Um, it's it's not hard to read it's it's broken up into very short little chapters you can just pick up and read any part of it uh, it's very easy it's very simple it's easy to understand um, what, what's your favorite story from the book oh gosh you would ask me that my favorite story from the book that doesn't have to be your favorite what what's one of the stories because i'm sure that there are lots of that would be your favorite what's what's one well, here's one I think is kind of interesting. I was talking about business planning. And I was once asked to coach the founders of a startup from our local technology park. They were trying to get an NSF grant, National um, Science Foundation grant. Yeah. And my job was to help them with their business plan so they could get the money. And it was somewhere around 500000 if I recall correctly. Unfortunately, though, their plan wasn't just weak. It was completely incoherent. There were so many buzzwords and acronyms in it that I couldn't begin to understand what they did, much less how they were going to make money on it. So I called the CEO several times to gain clarity, and the guy never even called me back. Um, I don't think he liked it that I didn't understand his business, but the people he was trying to get capital from were probably going to be more like me than him. Right and not knowledgeable about a specific technology um so in any case you know that's just one of many stories but it it represents a failing that i think is really common you know people they can't even explain what their business is going to do and if they can't do that how in the world are they going to sell a customer or raise the capital they need or recruit other people to work there i mean it's just it's so fundamental. I mean, you just see a million mistakes that people make. You know, as I tell my students and, and who are working on their small business uh, projects, um, 
you know, finding ways to improve the typical small business is like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's so, so easy um, to do. I, 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 you know, is there, is there a pattern um, in you've, you've have experience in hundreds, maybe thousands of businesses and the, the the development of them. Mm -hmm. Would you say that there's a pattern of, um, not failures, but struggles that most businesses experience that, that could easily be fixed if they just focused on them? Yeah, I think there definitely is a pattern. Um, they, they start out by not knowing really who their customer is, their target customer. And if it's the whole world that makes it extremely difficult to market. Yeah. And architects are famous for that. Architects love to be generalists. They want to serve everybody and design everything. Yeah. So that you're, you're, you got a problem right from the get go. If you can't really define, you know, who your market is in detail, that's, that's a common problem. Um, Do you find that, and do you find that in other industries as well, that, that they want to be everything to everyone? Absolutely. See it all the time. Um, you know, and then there's a million other problems. They, they don't, um, if you've got a new business, you're going to have to spend more money on marketing than the average business in your industry. And instead, many of these new businesses don't do anything at all. And then they say, they wonder why they're not successful. They, they're so in love with whatever their product or service is that they think everybody else is going to the moment they hear about it, if they ever hear about it, that is. And um, they just can't understand that, you know, if the industry norm and whatever it is, they want to sell hamburgers is spending 5% on revenue on advertising, then they may need to spend 15% of revenue to get any traction in the market. And you just see this over and over. Do you recommend that to architects as well, that they should be advertising and doing paid advertising? Mm. When I say advertising, I, I mean, maybe that's advertising and promotion. I don't recommend architects do paid advertising. By and large, I think it's a waste. There may so, be a so, so market and lack of marketing is one of the big problems. Totally. And I agree with you. What would yeah, you say is... If, if an architect is nodding their head right now saying, yep, I'm one of those firms that, that they're working their butts off, but they, they're not doing anything in marketing and wondering why nobody's knocking on the door. What, what would you suggest that uh, a strategy might be for a small, a a small firm? Pick a focus. How far can you, you know, what types of organizations are you trying to sell to? what geographic reach do you think is reasonable for you to serve or be able to get work from? If it's 20 miles from where you are, then find every single one of those within 20 miles, find every single person in those organizations who can hire you or influence the decision to hire you. And then figure out about 20 different ways you can reach them. I mean, you can survey them. Literally, literally 20 different ways, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, not gotta, an exaggeration, right? It's, it's you can't just send them an email and say, "Oh, done." <laughs> yeah, we we're a wonderful design firm that does everything for everybody. And oh, but they didn't it. respond to my email, Mark. Yeah, and we tried that once, and it didn't <laughs> work. That's my favorite. But yeah, 
you know, you need to be on all the relevant social media. You need to be sending out press releases. You need to be sending out newsletters. You need to be doing podcasts. You need to be doing, uh, you know, all the various social media options that exist out there. You can survey people. You can give free talks. I mean, there's just a million things you can do. You can provide helpful information on a consistent basis. You can tell stories of people who are clients without naming them that did stupid things that cost them money or created problems. I mean, there's just a million different ways to do it, and you got to do them all. If you do those things, you're probably going to be successful. Yeah. You don't you do could, that. You could, with, with your example, you said, you know, sort of find your, your target market, find your region, right? You're the range of which you're going to serve. And if it is, let's say there are 20 people or 20 companies that you've identified, you can literally go there and knock on the door, introduce yourself, right? That is going to make you stand out. That's going to differentiate you because nobody's doing that anymore, right? Everybody's sending emails. So if you knock on the door and say, hey, I'm an architect, I do what you need done. Um, yeah. I'd love to take you out for coffee. Do you have time? They, yeah. they remember you. There's, there's just so many things you can do. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is supported by Travel by Design, an original podcast from Marriott Bonvoy Traveler. Behind the facade of every world-class hotel, there's a story waiting to be heard. Join host Hamish Kilburn as he meets the architects, the designers, and the visionaries who dive deep into the craft of design and connect us to the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. On each episode, Hamish chats with the creative mind behind a one-of-a-kind hotel to hear what inspired their concept, how they brought it to life, and what it's like to enjoy the space as a traveler. From a secluded overwater villa in the Maldives, to a renovated royal palace in Budapest, to a, to a trendy hotspot in downtown LA. If you're a designer who loves to travel to unique and inspiring locations, or someone like me who just loves to learn the stories behind the designs of these special places, Travel by Design is the podcast for you. I just finished listening to the episode about Muir Halifax, a maritime-inspired luxury hotel in Nova Scotia. The husband and wife team of Alessandro Mung and Grace Zappelli, they shared their process and their precedence for the interiors, the furnishings, and the art collection. And they, they talked about how they integrated a unique one-of-a-kind autograph collection into their design. The conversation among Hamish, the editor of Hotel Design, so he brings his own unique perspective. The conversation between Hamish and the designers of this special place, they make you feel like you're there with them. In this episode that I just listened to, they talk about the history and the qualities of the seaside environment in which this hotel is located and the raw elements of Halifax that inspired the design and the precise details of the materials used, the, the way that the, the light comes through the window, the way the, the wood and the leather feel. The conversation was so interesting and most interesting because Alessandro and Grace had just returned to that hotel as guests. So they just experienced for themselves the beauty and the surprises that they purposely designed into their project. I love design, but, but even more, I love the stories about how designs came to be. This podcast not only inspires me as a creative, hearing the process other designers go through to create these unique one-of-a-kind experiences, but it also connects with me through the storytelling, as if 
each place was the backdrop of some exciting narrative that the travelers who visit experience. So check out Travel by Design. And if you're anything like me, I think it may find a new spot on your podcast playlist. Search for Travel by Design in your podcast player of choice, or just click the link in the show notes for this episode. And many thanks to Marriott Bonvoy and Travel by Design for their support. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running. And the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered, and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Artcat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's artcat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. The marketing is a big failing. I think another failing of a lot of these new ventures is they they sort of have this implicit assumption that everybody's going to want to work there and they're all going to work for nothing. You know, when I say nothing, I mean super low pay and right. no benefits. I see this over and over again. And it's like, no, they're not going to. You're not going to get anybody good like that. Um you can't think like that. It's like, you know, we pay 11 bucks an hour. Yeah, but, you know, the anybody else is paying 20 bucks an hour and they've got other benefits for people. And it's just this this sort of thing that everybody's going to want to jump on their bandwagon and, and embrace their cause and get zero rewards for it. And um, that's a big, big problem with a lot of companies. And it's why they have such horrible service and 
low productivity. You know, they just don't pay to get anybody who's any good. There's no incentives. They don't share any financial information with their employees. I mean, that's another failing of a lot of these small businesses that start out is they have very bad accounting. And um, sometimes it's deliberate. You know, some business owners don't want to show all their income. Yeah. So they deliberately have bad or no accounting in an attempt to, uh, you know, evade taxes. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of architects are, are running checkbook accounting, right? If oh, there's yeah. money, if there's money in the bank, then I'm good. You know how many people I've tried to explain the difference in cash and accrual to in this industry over the years? Yeah. Some of them were owners and businesses for 40 years. I mean, yeah, that's a huge problem. Um, yeah. People just don't get it. I mean, I just had this this week. We talked about that with my students. And again, you know, they're mainly juniors and seniors. And most of them have had some accounting by the time they get to me. And they still don't really get it, you know. I mean, it's one of my pet peeves, I think, with a lot the way a lot of things are taught. And and we do a pretty good job at the Walton College, and we're getting better all the time. We're growing when other comparable schools are declining. So it says something about it, um, what we're doing. And we just keep bringing out more and more offerings um, that are more targeted. Like we've got a new outdoor recreation major for outdoor rec-oriented businesses. Yeah. We're having a new healthcare program um, that we're bringing out. But in any case, the point is we need to do a better job explaining the context of this stuff to people and then get into the details. Like accounting, you know, I always start with what's an income statement and, you know, how does that work and what's a balance sheet and how does that work and why are they important? All that is where I would start instead of, here we go. These are debits. These are credits. These are T accounts. People don't understand that. You yeah. know, it's just, it's like. Ah. Start with the fundamentals, learn the basics. And then, and then those other things, really the other things aren't as important, right? <laughs> the basics are the important part. Understand your profit loss statement, understand the balance sheet and why it exists and how you, how to use it on a monthly basis to see how and where you're going. Exactly. So, so Mark, you said that many of the of the struggles that businesses have, whether they're architects or just other general businesses, is um, is target market marketing, paying their employees well so they they stick around. A lot of the response to those failings uh, are that I don't have the money, right? I started this business and I don't have the money. So, so what's your response to that? Let's say, and let's say it's a it's gen, you know, let's even make it easier to answer the question they're a startup and those are, those are, you know, you, we're going to try to avoid those problems. Do we have to fund our, our firms? Do we have to have money in the bank before we start this thing? For a, a professional service firm, you need very, very little money. Okay. You know, that's, oh, it's another one of the, my pet peeves and I disarm it in the book is, you know, a common reason for business failure is cited as inadequate with capital i'm sure right. you've seen this okay sure. yeah it's like yeah any business can survive indefinitely if it just has enough money to keep losing money i mean that's the <laughs> dumbest thing i've ever seen it's like saying somebody died because they bled to death well, why'd they bleed to death because somebody shot them okay i mean let's avoid getting shot in the first place but anyway um so yeah um 
you can do it with very little money. I talk a lot about bootstrapping here in the book and how to do it. I got probably 20 or 25 very specific things you can do. And when I say bootstrapping, that's a buzzword, but it means, you know, using very, very little capital, borrowing the least required and getting the putting the least amount of cash into it that you have to. Not getting outside equity. So you keep 100% ownership of the business. And of course, there's a million things you can do. I mean, it's going to take good cash flow forecasting. It's going to take super quick billing. It's going to take asking for retainers. It's going to take um, going to virtually anybody that you buy anything from and trying to get payment terms from them to allow you to pay them later. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's just a, a hundred different things that you can do um, to bootstrap that business, get all the credit you can before you start, get all the credit cards you can before you start. Um, I mean, I could go on, you know, a lot of this stuff's not, um, you know, neuroscience. I mean, it's pretty simple stuff and, and you just have to do it. You have to have discipline. You got to ask. I mean, I learned really early on, I worked for a consulting firm when I got out of grad school in 1980. And we needed some money. And the boss came around and said, okay, if anybody talks to a new client, tell them they got to send us at least 1500 bucks before we do anything for them, you know, as a part of your proposal. And just always ask for some cash. So I get this guy, his name is Joe Bednarovsky. He's the controller for a company in New Jersey called Robbins Engineers and Constructors in Totowa. I'll never forget. And, you know, I'm talking to him about his problem and it was going to be like a $4,400 job. And I said to the guy, I said, look, Joe, all we need to get started is a check for $1,500. And I was about ready to say, but this time we'll let that go, you know, because <laughs> I was afraid. Yeah. Before I could get those words out, Joe's like, what um, address do I send that to? Yeah. And when the check came in, you know, the boss was so ecstatic, you know, he, called everybody together it's like mark's the only guy that does what I do. you know lesson learned he, he, lesson learned is ask and you shall receive and yep. man i always did that you know but i mean there's just so many things that you know you talk about architects and and you know they wait till the end of the month to send a bill out when the project's completed on the fifth of the month what the hell is that about that's just dumb yeah, asking asking for money up front is hard for architects to do. They should be all doing that. Um and and not being afraid of it, right? What's really interesting about especially small firms is that most of their clients have never done this before. They don't know what's the standard, right? So this the standard is whatever you've created, right? So if the standard is you pay me 100% up front, and they're like, okay, here's the, here's a hundred percent upfront, you know, here's a full hundred percent retainer. We'll get started tomorrow. You know, it, it's amazing how often they'll say yes. If you, if you just may ask the question. It, it's so true. And the same thing with, with collections. I mean, it's like, you know, in our contracting business, we used to send bills out weekly. And before we ever took a job with a client, I'd go, look, now here's the deal. Every Friday or whatever the day is, I'm going to give you a bill. I'm expecting to get paid for that. As I give you the bill, I expect you to write me a check right then. Oh, wow. 
I can't finance your business. Okay. The people that we're hiring all expect to get paid. All right. And I'm not in a position to finance your construction job. Why in the world would you think I would want to do that? So if that's not cool with you, then we've got a problem and we can't work. Right. Setting expectations is so important. Exactly. And the first time that they don't pay me, man, it's going to be a, you know, we're going to have a serious talk and we're going to, if it looks like I'm not going to get paid, then we're going to stop. Right. And that's reinforcing the expectations, right? You set the rule and then you have to reinforce that rule because the first minute, the first time you let that rule slip, it'll slip every time. So, yeah, there's just so many things. I mean, of course, they should get a bank line of credit for their accounts receivable. A lot of them don't even know they can go borrow on their AR. I mean, and, you know, we're talking not just about architects and engineers, obviously, yeah. this book. And there are other things you can do. One of the things I learned when we got Zweig Group back, and, you know, well, when we came back to it and the lender still owned the company, that was the first arrangement, even though I had some ownership given to me to recruit me back. Um, and this is something my wife discovered. You know, we took credit card payments for books, surveys, newsletters, seminars, things like that. And she goes, um, she figured out that every month at that time we were running, let's say, an average of maybe 70000 80000 a month in American Express charges. Well, American Express would front us about 95% of our previous month's income that we took in where people paid with American Express. I had no idea that that was even an option. And then as people the next month bought stuff on American Express, that loan got paid down. And then the next month you could get it again. Well, when you're struggling and you got an undercapitalized business, being able to get seventy or eighty thousand in working capital from a source you had absolutely no idea even existed—I mean, it was great for me because I was writing checks, at every, you know, every time to meet payroll. Uh, hey, Mark, I need a hundred thousand. I need sixty-eight thousand. I need whatever, you know. And I—I I mean, so I was doing that on top of it because the place was in such bad shape. But that extra. 60, 70, 80,000 a month. I mean, those are the kind of things that people can do. There's just a, a lot of those, as you know, getting vendor financing. I just want to remind everybody if they want to hear that whole story, that's a great story about Zwei Group selling it, rescuing it, buying it back. Episode 373. You should definitely listen to it. Um, Mark, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. I wanted to ask before I ask my final question, because you asked that final question before, I want to ask you again. Um, but 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 is there, um, I wanted to sort of move down the chain a little bit, right? Let's let's look at a, a, a firm that is financially pretty, pretty doing, doing pretty well, right? Let's say it's a million dollar firm, right? They have million dollar revenue, still a very small firm. How do you take a million dollar firm and turn it into a $5 million firm? What, what does the mindset have to do to shift from from a $1 million firm to a $5 million firm? That's a really good question. And I'm going to give you a very specific example. Okay. Um, and it's going to be bigger numbers than that. But yeah, I got, would... called, I got called to this company one time to um, help them with the structure of their board of directors, what the role of the board is, how often it should meet, you know, what should be on the agenda and so forth. So I'm talking with the CEO 
and he shows me a a their business plan and their business plan has a statement in it to the effect that they would rather be a 50 million dollar company that makes a 10 million dollar profit than a 100 million dollar company that makes a 10 million and i said to him i said um i'm curious why is that well we just want to be a real efficient company that's that's highly profitable i said okay um, but did you ever think about the value of the business which one of those two businesses do you think is worth more the one that makes 10 million on 50 million in revenue or the one that makes 10 million but has 100 million in revenue. Because I never thought about that. I said, I can tell you right now, the $100 million business is worth more money. It's got more potential to make profit. It's worth a lot. How much more is it worth? Well, if I look at the average of the industry, it's like 70% of revenue. So I would guess that one's worth maybe 35 million more than the other one because nobody's going to pay you for being extraordinarily profitable they don't think it's going to continue after they buy your business um he's like holy cow i never looked at it like that and it changed their whole orientation he'll give me credit for it today in the last couple of years they did four to five hundred million in revenue and they're super profitable okay they're the most they're they're one of the three most profitable companies I ever worked with in this business. We ended up doing a lot of different things for them. They had a private equity investment since then. They made a lot more money. You know, I could just say, do you think the salaries of a five million dollar company are better than a company that makes a million dollars? Just look at any salary survey, and you'll see that whatever the job is, they pay better in the company doing five million than the one doing one. Um, you know, value, opportunity for your people, uh, ability to exit and have somebody want it. You know, it's hard to sell a million dollar business, but it's easier to sell a $5 million one because a lot of companies that buy companies look at it as it's just as much trouble to buy a million dollar company as it is a five. Why not do a five? I mean, we can talk about the value, the exit options, the better opportunities for employees, the better opportunity to pay everybody better. Are there are there operational shifts that have to happen from a firm that's a million to five million? Or is it essentially the same thing just scaled up? I, I can't say. I mean, I don't know what the million dollar doing specifically, but there may be. I mean, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of open book management. I mean, getting other people so they understand how the business makes money and the typical million dollar revenue design firm they're not sharing anything with anybody. You know, the owner might make two or 300,000 and the next group down makes very little. You know, maybe there's somebody else that makes a hundred and then the rest of them are all grunt workers or whatever. They don't really explain the business. So I think that's important, you know, is, is sharing the numbers. Maybe you got to cut people in on the profits. Um, maybe you need to organize differently. Maybe you need standing teams you're not the leader of every single thing. It goes through you. Maybe yeah. you need a little more formal organization structure of some sort. Somebody's the outside person and somebody's watching the inside. I mean a one a one million dollar firm can be run by one person, right? Not not operated by one person, but led by one person. And a five million dollar firm, typically architecture firm, is going to start needing some partners, right? Or or upper level management 
that that do some of the things you can't run it all yourself anymore yeah you just run out of time so absolutely so yeah there's gonna it it will evolve the organization structure the accounting the information sharing you know all those things maybe maybe they want to make one or two of those key people owners maybe they want to sell sell some ownership to them and and um, you know finance that so it's easy for them to buy and and get them vested in the success of the company makes it easier to get out later that there are people who know how it operates you know other principles who could carry on i mean sure there are things they're going to have to do differently in the typical one million to five million dollar scale up for sure yeah what would you say is the one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow Ah, gosh, what's the one thing they can do today? Yeah. What's the one thing that they should do today? If, if they're, if they're listening to this and they're like, well, I, I need to, to grow this thing, right? I've, I've done all these problems that you've been sharing. I'm going to give you two things that I can't just say one, start marketing yourself freaking effectively and consistently and relentlessly and much more systematic effort to um put the word out about what you're doing and why you're good and why a client should want to work with you okay that's the first thing they they're very inconsistent typically and they do things when they need work and when they don't need work they completely drop the ball and so you can't operate like that you gotta have consistent and you know everybody's afraid well if i send them an email once a day then maybe they'll get mad at me Okay, maybe they will get mad at you, but the other 500 people that you're doing that with, maybe they'll like you and somebody will call you. So what's that worth? One of them that's never going to call you anyway opts out, and the other one that uh, may not have called you otherwise does because you're top of mind. I mean, you know, so consistent, relentless marketing. And then the second thing is just raise all your prices. I mean, it's a great time. Right now is a great time to do it as we record this. You know, the year is starting to wrap up. It's a good idea to send a notice out to all your clients that on January 1, 2023, billing rates are going to go up by 15%, okay, across the board. If you want to get anything underway right now, we'll be glad to work for you at our current billing rates. Now's the time to sign up, and we'll commit to that for however long it takes to do your work. But after January 1, they're going up 15%. I would do that every single year. I'm not saying 15% every year. But they're going to go up, get people used to it, keep pushing your prices up. And, you know, what's that going to do for you? Well, that's why you got to keep marketing it because you need new clients that are willing to pay the price to get you. And you want to weed out your bad clients who are a pain in the ass to deal with or won't pay good fees or don't pay their bills when they get a bill or are just difficult to work with. The ones that don't listen or antagonistic or you know, you want to weed all them out because that's going to make your life better. It's going to make everybody's life better in the company. Getting rid of those bad clients. That is very, very good advice from the Mark Zweig, the founder of the Zweig Group, the author of 13 books, including Confessions of an Entrepreneur, Simple Wisdom for Starting, Building, and Running a Business. Check it out. We'll have a link to the show no- in the show notes to purchase it. You can find it anywhere books are found. Um, it's available at the Arkansas press directly. If you want Amazon, it's at Barnes and Noble books, a million, wherever you buy books, it'll be there. 
we'll have a link on our show notes. Just go to the show notes and click the link and uh, and you can buy the book there. I, I recommend this book. This I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to buy it. I'm recommending it because it's written by Mark and I'm looking forward to uh, to reading it. Mark, thank you very much for all you've done for this profession. This You have uh, had a massive impact in the way that this pro- profession works uh, today and into the future, uh, which means that you have had a massive impact on the world through architecture. And so I appreciate you for your work uh, throughout all of your years. But it, I, I really appreciate you coming back here and spending some time with us at the Entree Architect podcast. Uh, I hope we can do it again soon. Me too. It's always great to talk to you, Mark. And I appreciate what you're doing for the profession as well. I know you have a real enthusiasm and energy for what these companies do and and care about the people that, that own them and work in them. And it comes through. I appreciate that, Mark. Thank you. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating write a review and share a link to this episode with a friend. I know I say this every episode. I hope you're doing it. I hope you do it right now because that's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Thank you to Arcat, FreshBooks, and Travel by Design for their support of this episode. Go check them out. Links to all our sponsors And all the resources that we discussed today are available on the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Go listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft, for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ArchiCAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect to see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect to learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. 
The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.